Uh, Tonight's Bible reading comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Uh, Why don't we pray and ask for God's help as we prepare to hear his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the word that you have provided us in this book of Jonah here this evening. Uh, I ask that as we seek to understand what you have to say to us together today, that you would be opening our hearts and minds so that we would hear your word and respond rightly. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, as I was walking into church uh, the other week, I was walking back from teaching a scripture class and I came in just as a mother's Bible study has a crash was happening. And there was a whole bunch of sound uh, occurring as I was walking in because they were playing a game. Uh, you've heard of What's the Time, Mr. Wolf, right? Well, put that aside for a moment here because they were playing What's the Time, Mr. Jonah. And if you've never played What's the Time, Mr. Jonah before, don't worry, I got you. Let me just give you a moment just to explain how the game works. So I can't actually remember how What's the Time, Mr. Wolf works, but you know how, like, I think it's like numbers, you take steps or whatever, and they get really close to the Mr. person? Well, when they get really close to Mr. Jonah and he wants to do his cool thing, They go, what's the time, Mr. Jonah? And then he goes, Nineveh time! And then all of the two and three-year-olds got up and legged it in the opposite direction. (laughs) Uh, It's a pretty good way of summarizing what happens at the start of this book, right? The word of the Lord comes to Nineveh and he goes, no, and he bails to the same part of Spain that half of you guys just spent your whole European summer at. He gets out of here as far as he can go. And yet we see the great change in Jonah's story here tonight. He didn't make it to join you in Spain. He kind of got thrown overboard and swallowed by a big old fish and then vomited up on land instead. And yet here we see in our reading that the word of the Lord comes to him once again, but this time he actually goes. He goes to Nineveh to preach to them the message that God has sent him to preach. And I actually think that what Michael just read out for us earlier is one of the most vibrant explorations of judgment and repentance that we see in like the whole scriptures. And so what we're going to do today together, if you're on board, uh, is we're going to walk through this by paying attention to it under like three headings. We're going to take a look at judgment on Nineveh. 
Then we're going to look at Nineveh's repentance. And then we're going to look at what judgment and repentance looks like for us today. Sound good? Judgment on Nineveh, Nineveh's repentance, what judgment and repentance look like for us today. So why don't we start reading? Let's get into it. I'm going to read from verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Here, upon hearing his second call to to go, Jonah obeys and goes. And it's really interesting that the text doesn't really tell us like what Jonah thought about all of this. We get to spend next week in chapter 4 thinking about what Jonah thought about this passage uh, when our new seniors minister, the Reverend Rob Jones, uh, will... Oh, that's pretty embarrassing. Uh, we'll be walking us through. Uh, we'll be walking us through this passage here together. That's when we're going to get a bit of an insight into what Jonah's thinking and feeling here. But the most important thing that we see here is that he goes, like he actually went. We don't know how he got to Nineveh. We don't know how much time has passed since he was vomited by the fish. All we know is that he went. And given everything that's happened prior to this part of the book, that's a pretty monumental thing. Because preaching to Nineveh is no small mission. God describes the city as great. And you know, if you think about God, kind of the infinite creator of the whole entire universe, to look upon like a city made by us human beings and call it great, it must have been something pretty impressive. Uh, This is a pagan city. They know nothing of God. Uh, We see this description of Nineveh, uh, as we've talked about in earlier weeks. They were this key city in the Assyrian Empire, the local superpower at the time. And one of the ways that they had risen to the top was through their ruthlessness, their bloodiness, and their violence. You can read all the gory details of the messed up ways that they tortured people so that everybody would be afraid of them and their reign. And for a period of time, it worked. Their viciousness made them the top dogs of this area of the world. And yet God is determined that they will hear this message, this warning of judgment coming upon them. And for reasons we don't quite understand, God is determined that Jonah will be that messenger. And so he goes. He arrives and the text tells us that it takes three days to go through this city. It's an important city. It takes three days to go through. Uh, We don't take it that that means that it took like three days to walk across it. Now, if you really put your back into it, you could walk from like Brooklyn to Waterfall in three days. But, but what it means is to actually kind of explore and get through this city properly, it would take three days. It's like you're saying, this isn't a mere contiki city that you just want to get out for one night and then hop back on the bus to the other place. You really need three days to take in this kind of destination. And when he arrives there, the narrator tells us that he walks one day through the city preaching this message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not a gentle message. It's not a soft, warm and fuzzy message. It doesn't start with a cute, funny anecdote about kids running around at creche. It's a straightforward announcement of coming destruction. It's a short message too, isn't it? It has the brevity that sometimes I bet you wish that we had. And this leads us to our first point this morning here, God's judgment on Nineveh, because Jonah's message is a short and punchy message about God's coming judgment. And I want to suggest something that may seem a little bit counterintuitive. 
But I think this is a good message for the Ninevites to receive, not a bad one. In fact, I think you could go so far to say that this message is good news. That may sound a bit weird, but just work with me here. You see, in God's kindness, he sends a messenger before he sends the judgment, yeah? So the good news is that there's a delay. There's 40 days before God is bringing judgment upon this city. And so then the obvious question becomes, well, what is Nineveh going to do in those 40 days? Is there any kind of opportunity for them to make things right? See, I don't think I'm clutching at straws here. Uh, In the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, this is the city that's destroyed and then kind of sets the pattern and blueprint for whenever in the rest of the Bible God sends judgment upon a city. In that instance, there's no warning at all. The angels rock up, they tell a few chosen people, this city is getting destroyed right now, you need to leg it immediately, and they get up, they go, and they bail out of the city with the sulfur from the burning city warming their backs as they run. There's no delay, there's no warning, it's an instant judgment that they need to get out of. But here they have 40 days to do something about God's coming judgment. Judgment, you don't need me to tell you, is unpopular in our society. Um, There's perhaps no worse things that somebody could say about you, uh, but for them to call you judgmental. And that's always very interesting because in order for them to call you that, they've had to judge that you're judgmental, but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, It's unpopular in our society. We want to live how we want to live. And it's our default state to want to rail against God. And even the most devoted Christians here, I think, easily at some point feel that there's a part of us that thinks it's not quite right for God to claim that he has the right to judge me. And warnings about God's coming judgment are hardly perceived well either. This is like no one's favorite topic, yeah? But I think that it's helpful for us to rightly understand the difference between the warning of judgment and the judgment itself. What we see here in Jonah 3 is not God's judgment, it's a warning of coming judgment. Because the warning, uh, because judgment when it arrives, it is always just, and sometimes it is punishing, and sometimes it is ruthless. But the warning of a coming, pu- of a coming punishment is always kind and merciful. Uh, let me explain that to you uh, with a story. Uh, A few years back, me and one of my buddies were driving down to South Australia. We had to pick up uh, a friend of ours in a weird situation. It's a long story. You can ask me about it later if you want. Uh, We picked up some great fruit on the drive from some stalls by the side of the road. We bought some excellent looking mandarins and were very excited to eat them. But we didn't want to eat them all at once. So we decided that we were going to save them and eat them across the time of the journey. Yeah, We did that weird little bit if you've ever driven to South Australia before. We just kind of like dip into Victoria for an hour or two. And then we came up to the South Australian border as we were about to drive through. And then all of a sudden we saw that there was like this checking station. Yeah, We needed to kind of pull over to this place uh, where there were a bunch of fruit police who were going to check to see if we had any contraband in our car that we couldn't have. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, we're like, we're like two friendly white teenagers. Like, we'll be fine. We'll just be like really nice and we'll just kind of talk to these people. And if we have anything that we're not allowed to have, surely they'll just let us put it in the bin. No, we were wrong. And if you've ever come across the fruit police, you know just how wrong I was. 
Once we talk to the fruit police, uh, they got three of their Mandarin officers who came and kind of talked with us. Then we were, me and my buddy Cooper, we were escorted by these three men to a small, demountable room without any windows or much furniture or any decoration in the room whatsoever. We were sat down across a fold-up table from two extremely terrifying-looking men to be like fruit officers. It was very, very bizarre. And they sat down to us and they leaned in and they said, what was your intention with these mandarins? And we looked at each other and I'm like, I don't know what the right answer here is. <laughs> and we said, to, to eat them? <laughs> and they're like, okay, right. And then they said, why did you think you could bring fruit into South Australia? Did you not see the signs? And then boom, he had this big like A4 laminated book that he like dropped on the desk as loudly as he possibly could. And then he started opening up, going through it. He said, 60 kilometers away from the border that you just crossed through, there was this sign here that I've got a photo of saying, do not take fruit into South Australia or you will receive a $400 fine. Did you see this sign? And he went, oh. Oh, yeah, we did actually, but like we thought it was just like for trucks and stuff. And I'm like, no, it was not just for trucks. And then he turned the page. He said, five kilometers down the road, there was this next sign that said that if you have fruit in your vehicles, there are bins at this rest station and you must get out now and dispose of your fruit. Did you do it? Did you see that sign? And we went, oh, no. He proceeded to do this with the next 10 signs between that we'd driven past on the way to this fruit checking station. He really wanted us to understand that we had been warned and that we had stuffed up. And so when me and my buddy got this letter in the mail the next day finding us $400 for attempting to smuggle mandarins into South Australia, uh, I appealed to the South Australian government and said, if you enact this fine, I will never recommend anyone go to your great state ever again. And they didn't do anything about it because they'd warned me. They'd told me so many times, if you do this thing, you will receive this punishment. That was the punishment of $400 over three mandarins unfair. Well, I'll let you guess how I feel about that. <laughs> but were the signs kind? Were they good and merciful warnings trying to spare me from the cruel punishment from the mandolin, mandolin, mandolin police? I've just said it too many times. Yeah, uh, it, it was. It was a good thing. It was meant to give us time to respond, but we didn't. We ignored the literal signs and warnings ahead of us and received the fine. We responded to our warning wrongly. So the question for us in this text now then is, how's Nineveh going to respond to their warning? And this brings us to our second point, Nineveh's repentance. Because Nineveh repents. They repent, in fact, in an extraordinary way. You know, it's hard to feel the surprise of it all if you're familiar with this story. You know, we've already heard the Bible reading come out. It's a little bit like watching a movie with a twist for the fifth time, trying to act like surprised and blown away when you find out that Tom Marvolo Rivell really was Lord Voldemort. You go, oh my goodness, I've watched this movie like 11 times. But as you're used to this as it goes through, it's so easy to miss that the idea of the Ninevites repenting from such a short message, from such a flawed messenger, is kind of ridiculous and amazing. This is not what you would expect would take place. But in a way, the Ninevites are like a case study on what it looks like to repent. Uh, and that's kind of what we're going to do with Nineveh for the next little bit here. You know, repentance is, uh, is an interesting term. 
Uh, a common way of explaining it is that to repent is like uh, to stop going in one direction that you're heading in, to turn around, and then to start going in a different direction. It's to chuck a U-turn is what it means to repent. And I think that the Ninevites give us an excellent example of what that means and what that looks like. And so I want us to pay attention to two things in the Ninevites' response. Firstly, they pay attention to God's message. Let me read verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? It doesn't say here, and Jonah did a really good job, so the Ninevites said, thank you, Jonah, we're going to stop being evil. It's not about Jonah. He's just an agent that God's using for his plans. No, this is all orchestrated by God. This is all being done by God. And so God is the one that the Ninevites believe. But look what they do next. This is against us to our second thing. They repent in word and action. Uh, we, we see their repentance in word in verse 8, uh, where uh, in the king's decree, uh, it says, he says to the people, let everyone call urgently on God. Uh, I think that we should take it from here that, that they're call, what they're calling on him for is his mercy. That he's suggesting that they call on God for his mercy. But it's not just mere words that make up their repentance. Because I don't know about you, but I think that so many of us take repentance that's built up of just mere words deeply unseriously, you know, saying in a fight with a family member, yeah, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'll do it better next time. Not because you have any intention whatsoever of changing or doing it better, but just because it's going on a little bit long and you want to wrap up so that you can finish your episode before your bedtime. These are empty words. Or think of all the Sydney siders who rolled out of bed at 11.47 this morning with a thudding headache from their hangover from the night before to vow to the heavens in their pain, I'm never going to drink again, only to do the exact same thing next weekend. When the Bible's talking about repentance, it's not talking about empty words with no action to back it up. It's talking about a whole life turnaround into a different direction. And for Nineveh, they don't just do any empty words. No, in fact, it's the complete opposite. It's like they give you the most maximal version of repentance you've ever seen in your life. They call upon God. They declare a, a fast from comfortable clothing and food and drink. They even put like, animals in sacks. Did that jump out to you in the reading? That's a bit of a weird thing that they do, right? Why have they put their animals in sacks? I don't think it's just to give Josh a really easy idea for his kids' craft in his ministry this morning. Uh, it's not put in there for fodder for that. But I think we're seeing that the Ninevites understand that the judgment that they deserve extends to all of the stuff that they have and that their livestock, uh, an important part of their infrastructure, an important part of their local economy, well, actually, if they deserve judgment, then the livestock's going to get it as well. And if they want God to delay his judgment against them, then they also want their animals to be saved. So they put them in the sackcloth, almost of a symbol, saying, please, Lord, have mercy upon them as well. But one of the crazy things about this story of repentance here, I think, is what the king of Nineveh says in verse 9. Uh, take a look down and read it with me. Uh, after decreeing all of this, he says, who knows? God may relent 
and with, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They're saying, we've turned around. Who knows? Let's hope that maybe God turns around. And we see in verse 10 that that is exactly what happens. They deserve his judgment and yet they receive his compassion. And it's not the city that ends up being overturned. It's their guilt. They hear about God's judgment and they turn and God sees their repentance and he turns from his fierce anger and the entire city repents. Now, that can seem hard to believe to our modern minds, I think. But I think we've got to note that there's many times in history where massive crowds have repented all altogether. You know, times where huge revivals and awakenings have broken out and way more than 120,000 people have repented. Because God's message of judgment being able to be overpassing you, that God would turn his judgment away from you, has in many times led to an extraordinary response of repentance. And so I want to take us to what that means and looks like for us today, but I want to do this via a quick detour back to what Jesus has to say about the sign of Jonah uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Because it's very, very interesting uh, the way that Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament. Uh, Brian spent some time uh, bringing us to this verse here last week and focused on one part of the parallel here. Uh, but I want to take us to look at another parallel here between Jesus and Jonah's ministry. So let me read uh, Matthew 1240 to you. Uh, the Pharisees who are trying to reject Jesus' teaching have just asked him for a sign. And Jesus has said, you will not receive a sign, but the sign of Jonah. And then he goes on to say this. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus draws this parallel between himself and Jonah, which is kind of amazing, right? Because Jonah's not exactly the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, right? Like who would you expect Jesus to pick? Maybe Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, one of the guys that we think of as the goodies. Why has he picked Jonah here? Well, I think it's because of the parallels between their ministries, right? We talked about this one a little bit last week, but I'll just jog our memories. In a way, they're both resurrected prophets, you know? Jonah pretty much dies as he falls into the sea, and he's pretty much raised back to life as he's delivered through the big fish. But Jesus literally dies and is literally resurrected in front of people. They're both prophets who've gone through this death and resurrection moment with a message of repentance to preach. But you want to know the difference? The difference is that Jesus' message is far clearer and far greater than Jonah's. See, we have no idea if the Ninevites even knew that Jonah had been in a fish. But Jerusalem did. They knew that Jesus was crucified. They saw that he'd been resurrected. And they knew that he'd warned that one day he'll come back to judge the world. See, the Ninevites got it right. And the question raised by this passage is Jesus is saying, I am a better message and a better messenger than Jonah. What are you going to do? Are you going to respond rightly? And he's saying that if they fail to respond rightly, that the Ninevites, 
who was saved with such a short message by such a flawed prophet will stand up on them on that last day with judgment because they repented with the little they had. How could the people Jesus is speaking to possibly not repent with the great message from the perfect prophet? So all of this brings us to our third and final point today, our third and final heading. What does this judgment and repentance look like for you and I today? I mean, you can really propose this as another question, right? Will we do the same thing that the people of Nineveh did? Or will we be like those who ignored Jesus' message despite his greater and clearer sign? See, just as the Ninevites deserve God's judgment, so do you and I. We stand before God as guilty and deserving of his judgment. And this is so different from what the world has to say about us, right? I think that so often the way that we can talk and think about ourselves, like we're actually just not that bad. Like, yeah, sure, sometimes we might do some messed up or sort of selfish stuff. But at the end of the day, like, we're pretty good and decent people. And surely we do enough good stuff that outweighs the kind of crummy things that we do. So it's all going to come out of the wash in the end. I can feel like that by our own standards, right? But the problem is we're not judged according to our own standards. We're judged by God's standard. And His standard is perfection. That's where God sets the bar and none of us by ourselves can clear it. And because of that, we will be accountable for the ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned. And the Bible speaks of a day where one day we will be held accountable and it will be terrible. It speaks of this judgment and it says that the result for this judgment for those who do not have Jesus representing them is punishment of hell. And when the Bible describes hell, it uses some of its most terrible and horrific language. It talks about a fire that never goes out. It talks about an everlasting darkness. It talks about a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think so often from like pop culture or cartoons or whatever, we can get this idea that like hell is going to be like a bar with all of our buddies where all of like the rule lawyers have gone and we can just have our own fun because there's no one around to tell us what to do. My friends, that is not what hell is. Hell is the experience of punishment from God as a result of our rebellion against Him. And I just need to interrupt here for a moment to say that I am not having a good time talking about this right now, right? I take no glee and no joy whatsoever in talking about hell. For me as a preacher, I think it's the most difficult thing that I ever need to talk about. But it's such a disservice to not rightly inform people about what the scriptures say will happen to them if they neglect to repent from their rebellion against God. Again, as I said earlier, it's not casting judgment on someone by warning them about hell. It's giving them the opportunity to avoid this judgment by repenting. God is the God of a whole world and he does not overlook sin. See, God has authority over the Ninevites, even though they didn't recognize him. And yet the same is true of all our cities. The same is true of Sydney. The same is true of Thornley, Normanhurst and Wesley. Whether you, me or my neighbors, our friends, acknowledge God or not, repent or not, hell and judgment are realities. And we need to repent of our sin and turn to God to be saved. 
We need to do the same thing that the Ninevites have done. We need to repent. I just want to take a moment just to speak to the people here who've been coming for a while with us, investigating Christianity, wanting to make a decision. Firstly, I want to say I'm glad that you are here and that you're a part of our community. I'm glad that you have questions. I'm glad that you haven't let those questions just be total barriers to tapping out of investigating Christianity altogether. And I'm glad that you're still coming. But what I want you to see tonight is the urgency in this passage. The urgency to repent before the judgment comes. Because one thing that is kind of absolutely terrifying is that we have so much more information about God's judgment and how to repent from it than Jonah gave to the Ninevites. But he has one key, crucial piece of information that he gives to the Ninevites that we don't have. And that piece of information is this. It's when the judgment is coming, yeah? They're given 40 days. That's Jonah's message. 40 days and Nineveh overthrown. That's five weeks, five days. But you, me, we have absolutely no idea when God's judgment is coming. We have no clue. The Lord Jesus Christ could return tomorrow morning or he could return in another 2,023 years. We have no clue. And yet if the stakes are this high... Surely it's not a wise decision to just bank on being safe. That we'll probably ride it out. That, you know, the people who've existed in history before us went all right, that maybe we'll ourselves be okay. I don't think this is a wise decision. And so I want you to hear the urgency. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Acknowledge Him as the Savior who has taken the punishment for sin that you deserved and be saved from the judgment to come. That's all pretty terrifying, right? We don't normally get kind of like that turn and burn or fire and brimstone here at St. Stephen's, but we're committed to talking about what comes up in the text, and that's one of the things that we see in this passage here tonight, and we want to have the due diligence to talk about it. But I want you to see one beautiful thing that we also have indifference to the people of Nineveh, and that's this. There's one thing that we know that the Ninevites did not, and it's unbelievably comforting. Here it is. We don't have to be like the king of Nineveh, wondering, who knows? Maybe God will turn and save us. We don't have to wonder, because we have complete and utter certainty about what is on offer for us. We know that this offer of repentance is freely available to any of us. We know that Jesus has fully taken the punishment for sins upon himself on the cross. And because of this, we know that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. No maybes, no who knows, definitely. This is good news, isn't it? The certainty that those who repent can have in what Jesus will do for them. And I think that if you have decided tonight that you need to repent, that this certainty is a great promise held out to you. And that if you're a Christian who's already repented, in the times of trials that you may have in your life, this certainty is something good to hold on to. I think it has one more implication for us as well, though. If this is this certain, that people repent and they are saved, well, what's the book of Jonah wanting us to think? What we see here, I reckon, 
is like this great exaggerated example of like the most ridiculous group of people you could ever imagine to repent and yet they do it, yeah? And I think that that, what that is meant to lead us to think is that if the Ninevites repented with the message that they heard, if they weren't too far, if even them, they could repent, then surely anyone can. Surely anyone can repent. Surely no one is too far gone from God's grace. I think it means that our friends, our schoolmates, our co-workers, the people in our uni tutes, maybe we've tried to have conversations with them and nothing's happened. Guys, we can't give up because if the Ninevites could repent, surely they can. Our family members, our parents, our grandparents, our aunties and uncles, our kids even. But if we believe that Nineveh can repent and turn from their ways, surely they can. Now, who are the people who stopped attending this church like right before COVID and we just never saw them afterwards because COVID had that interruption? Have we given up on them? Thinking, ah, you know, they never just made it back. Maybe it's too late. It would be pretty awkward to reach out. I don't really know if they're interested in faith anymore. Can that really be the attitude that we have after seeing the salvation on offer here to the Ninevites? Surely that should shape us to have the utmost confidence in the power of God to save people through the preaching of his word. You you with me? You feeling that? If God can save the Ninevites, he can save our loved ones as well. And so I just want to close by reiterating this challenge of the Jesus Gives series that we have coming up in two weeks. We believe here at St. Stephen's and we try really hard to make our services a good week every week to have a non-Christian come along to. But we're doing that like uh, uh, in a big way uh, in two weeks' time. We're going to have four particularly outward-facing and four particularly invitational weeks that are designed more than usual to be inviting a non-Christian loved one along to. We've been talking about this for a bit now. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you have heard us talking about it. I guess what I want this talk to be for you, yeah, is just a jab in your arm to don't let this message that they're too far gone, that they'll never say yes, that they couldn't possibly repent, bring you down from extending this invitation to them. If the Ninevites can repent, your mate can too. It's not too late for them. Take hold of the certainty that is offered for all who turn to Christ and let this encourage you to be bold and generous as you invite people to repent and receive the salvation that Jesus brings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't need to be like the king of Nineveh, having absolutely no idea if our repentance will lead to anything, um, but that we know surely and certainly uh, that if we turn to you, you will save. I ask that if we've never done that before, um, that you would be convicting us to do that uh, so that the people who we love here would avoid the judgment to come. And I ask that if we've already done that, that you would comfort us in the knowledge of our salvation and that that would spur us on to, gen, uh, to, to without fear, invite our non-Christian loved ones uh, to repent and be saved in the same way that we have. And we pray this in the precious name of the Saviour. Amen.